Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. This episode is the second of our two-part interview with Magic the Gathering artist Adam Paquette. We were so delighted to have had so much material with Adam that we were able to split the entire interview into two sections, and that's not all. We've got another two episodes with Adam afterwards due to our overwhelming amount of mailbag listener questions. In this episode, we talk a little bit more with Adam about what Magic the Gathering planar design might look like if he had his way about it. We talk a little bit about Adam's inspirations and classical art and, you know, a little bit more. I think you'll all really enjoy this conclusion to the interview. So, without any further ado, let's get to the show. I was actually thinking that when you were when we were talking about this because you you have done at least um I think one or two planes for like the plane chase set. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh I did uh Kessig. Yeah. Did I do another one? Uh I think that was it. Okay. Yeah. So that you actually I mean you do have a little bit more card room. That art is gonna be at a, mm-hmm. a more of a traditional landscape and at a bigger thing. And I don't know if that would have I, I I mean I'm just that just stood out to me as we're discussing this because I'm wondering if that changes it at all what you kind of had the freedom to do. I, I think at the time I just like I was still pretty new uh, mm-hmm. to working for Magic when that happened. I hadn't seen those cards before, so I didn't really factor it in. And I think it's even it's always the case, uh, even with like full art lands or something like that. That you know, as a digital painter, it doesn't really make a huge difference to mm-hmm. me. They all look they're all you know 24 inches to me. Okay. So. Um, now as an as a as you know shifting into oil painting it would definitely make more of a difference yeah and uh you know but now i now i paint everything knowing that you know there's play mats there's prints there's traditional market and there's all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff so um, definitely i would say the bigger the better for me like the the paintings that i just wrapped up were 36 inches and that's a really good wow that yeah yeah that's like a really fun size for me and and probably at that point it hits like okay i'm gonna have to really think about how this scales down because i'm gonna lose these little details in the background and Mm -hmm. but i want them there for the for the bio when they have that painting because because it's really cool (laughs) little details you know um but yeah well and with things like more magic art shows happening Mm -hmm. having those bigger pieces i went to the one that they did the first one in vegas getting to see the differences in some of the older paintings that were painted very very small versus some some ones that had been done at a larger scale it was interesting to see those contrasted as the way the art was hung yeah i i would love to like try a one-to-one scale oil painted magic card oh, and just wow. like you know whip out That'd the microscope wild. and mm-hmm. and see you know i think it just would be a really fascinating thing to paint exactly at the size it's going to be seen and like maybe that results in a really really clear precise image you know i've seen i've seen plenty of uh, painters that can work that small so i'd be be curious even even just like maybe at the card size it would look super real and traditional if it was if it was reproduced one-to-one you know and it would would, you'd see the brush strokes at that point and Mm -hmm. and you say that you you say that you don't have enough vocabulary of experimentation but i'm hearing a lot of experimental (laughs) stuff right here even within it's it's theoretical (laughs) at this point let's 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 see if i actually do it Hey, hey, Da Vinci had to write his journals before he ever got to make a flying machine. So thank you. <laughs> Wait, he actually made a flying machine? What? No, I'm just... <laughs> Did you not play Assassin's Creed? Come on. That's a documentary, right? 
So, Adam, you've kind of helped. I mean, I think when I did the Scryfall search on you, I came up with 164 cards. Um, Way off. Really? I just, I just finished number 205. I think but what, they're, not, they're not released yet. Yeah, 164 that we have released. I mean, if you want to talk yeah. about the other 40, we're not going to stop you, but we also like you <laughs> and want you to keep getting work for Magic. So... Oh, yeah, the, I mean, there's a yeah. there's a really red one that I like, and there's there's one with lots of green. <laughs> you guys will love that one. Yeah. Ooh, are there there are, there are some white, blue, and black ones in there too, right? Oh, that man. that seems that seems like there's a trick question in there. I'm yeah. not going to answer that. <laughs> yeah, Joe, come on. What we really want to know is when he's doing a goblin. Okay, so we, we talked a little bit about this during the intro, but what you're really kind of known for in Magic, I mean, a lot of what comes up is is landscapes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the nature piece that you kind of described that you engaged with, I think, in your childhood a lot more. Yeah. And I'm just curious, do you have kind of a favorite plane that's been to illustrate the environment of? You know, we we have you, you know, Innistrad is kind of the first main expansion story that, that we have that you worked on. Yeah. And, you know, Ravnica, we know, is the mo- two of the most prolifically, they're represented in magic artwork. They have a very clear kind of the Eastern Central European look. Yeah. We're kind of curious what what plane has been your favorite to illustrate for. Um, I would say probably Kaladesh because of that connection to my childhood, and you know, more more than in the end, more than design, it, it's just the atmosphere. Like there was a card that I did that I think it was originally meant to be planes, and it ended up as a swamp. Uh, it's this kind of like orange sunset one and it's like over these rice fields Mm -hmm. and uh that was just like straight out of out of my like dream memory of of being a kid in india and having these crazy red sunsets and this kind of feeling of of like open sky but but dusky and hazy and whatever and like that was a a difficult world especially because like i was i was part of the reason that it ended up full of so much swirly curl metal filigree stuff which i'm sure everyone hates me for but um i mean the artists because it was such hard work to to paint it um but definitely definitely kaladesh and and even just like uh the was it another swamp this kind of blue one with the curly with the curly plants like there was just something really that brought me back to that atmospheric feeling of, of what fantasy is in that. The other one would definitely be Ravnica. Um, just like that, that was really the, the kind of fantasy that I loved to read when I was a kid. I loved um, China Mayville's The Scar. I don't know if you, if any of you read that, but it was, uh, mm-hmm. he's a, he's a great fantasy writer and he wrote this book about a, a, a city that was made out of ships that had been kind of gang pressed together by pirates. And it, it slowly over time created this floating city. Oh, and wow. so I just loved anything that had complex overlapping, you know, architecture and slums and Tokyo and like anything where there's little hidden, you know, ways to navigate through that place. Mm-hmm. Density. I just love that urban density stuff. So Ravnica is really cool and and playing with the vertical dimension in a city, which you normally think of as, as you know, streets on a horizontal plane. So playing with, you know, canyons made out of buildings. Um, but again, I got that in Kaladesh with Spire Bluff Canal. That was one of my favorite paintings ever just because it was like, oh, city, you know, that's kind of never-endingly deep. That's right up my alley. Um, so, yeah, Kaladesh, Ravnica, 
Innistrad, not so much. I, I found, even though it was actually the reason they got me on board with Magic initially was Jarvis was like, you know, we, I think you have a really dark kind of moody atmospheric lighting. And <laughs> uh, it's true. Like, And your I art is it. also great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was a real limitation there. It was like, we want the camera always at ground level. You know, mm. it's, it's, there's never bright uh, daylight and, um, it was we kinda, need gothic horror. That's it. I mean, yeah, and it was kind of like nice to to like lift up out of that world. And I think I think directly after we went to maybe Zendikar, I think was it directly after Innistrad, I think, and it was like whoa, sunlight. You know? <laughs> um, it yeah, just gives so. you more to play with. It seems like right. I mean, having those those differences of of. Uh, Gosh, now all of my art words are failing me. Uh, differences of values, but like different light sources right. and all that sort of stuff Tunnel just gives ranges. you more with... To wow. I'm sorry. Can I get that deeper? We explore tonal ranges. Oh, my God. <laughs> Damn, that is a nice mic setup. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, it seems like that just gives you more sort of knobs to twist and play with in your, in your artwork then, you know? Totally. Going I mean, away from I, I think if if we never changed worlds or if it was like, okay, you know, each artist is going to get assigned a plane and you become an expert of that plane. I'd be like, Oh no, no way. I'm out. Sorry guys. Like I need that. I need that, to, you know, to, to change it up. And, you know, um, I actually took a break from magic, uh, when they were doing Ixalan and I was bombed like what, cause Aww. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on cause I was out. And so like, I didn't really know until it got announced and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> dinosaurs and feathers? Oh man. Like, that was so cool. So I, I really hope that there's a return to Ixalan at some point and I get to dive into that. Cool. And we're curious, if you got to design it, what would you kind of like to take from that Australian history or kind of an Oceanian-themed plane? If, if you Oh, as a, to design a plane for Magic? Yeah. Okay, so I think the things that for me, and it's it's also really cool to think about this now that I live overseas because the, the longer I'm away, the more I appreciate the differences and, and start to miss stuff. So, you know... The the nature in um, the nature in Australia is, I think, I think it's easy to think of it as kind of barren in a way. Like it's not very, it's not jungle, it's not forest, it's it's not mountains. Like it's pretty flat, it's pretty deserty in a lot of places. And the bush, like our forest, what we call the bush, is really dry. And it's like, I mean, you can't walk through it. Like there's so much scrub and, and tangled undergrowth and, and stuff that kills you um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty impenetrable, but it's super, super alive. Like my memory of it is the sound of insects, like deafening, deafening sound of life. Mm. And being in German forests is like, where's everybody at? <laughs> Where'd everyone go? <laughs> you know, some, something I said. Um, <laughs> so like, I don't know how you would get noise into a magic plane, oh. but I would definitely get that feeling of like the danger is like everywhere. You can't really see it and it's kind of intense and it's like almost like it would probably be close to Zendikar actually. It's sort of like the land itself is, is alive and dangerous. Um, I think Australia is uh, entirely a place that's entirely um, dependent on its relationship with water. So I would see a mm. plane that featured a contrast between the, the inland desert and the coastal regions. Uh, I would see, you know, like, like something where water is the precious resource or something that, that is a metaphor for that. 
and you know some some kind of battle for um, control over that. And you know the history of of the Aboriginal people of Australia is fascinating because they were nomadic and they didn't build cities. They didn't have that kind of uh, city state uh, thing. So, you know, like, what does that mean to, to have to work with the land, to be constantly on the move, to be dealing with like open spaces, open skies, open coastlines, and to be kind of skirmishing and, and dealing with that kind of raw environment. So it'd be like survival, like dialing down the, the map curve, (laughs) you know, and, um, yeah, keeping things moving a lot. So probably, yeah. Well, and, and could, I really love this idea of the control of of a resource. Um, I mean, obviously, I've just started reading Dune for the first time. This is mm-hmm. really an odd thing, but I mean, the, the first thing I'm thinking of is that's not an island state. I mean, it's just a land with little moisture in it. But this yeah. idea that could the coastal people really being able the ones that are controlling this resource and what's that fight or battle look like? Right. I mean, like Australia is a coastal country like everyone like 99 percent of people live live around the coast and so i think it would be interesting you know what happens if if uh, you know back to the back to not australia but the the oceania plain like what happens when the coast isn't safe anymore and everyone gets pushed inland you know what Mm. if the danger is coming from the ocean which is their source of of water and of life and of food and everything like that and that's where the danger comes from and so they get pushed into the middle but of course, the middle is is where the ancient power is, and and so that's that's where the other resource is that can can help to balance the the the, the danger. Mm. Oh, and this idea that basically, as we know in Australia, everything can kill you would be great <laughs> to be represented on cards. I, I really like. I don't know. How oh yeah, because because we don't already have a game where everything's designed to to kill each other. Yeah. We right. don't. Uh, we don't have creature type koala yet, though, and so yeah. I'm just creature saying. Creature type drop bear. Drop bear. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this idea that you said it's almost like the buzzing, the insects. I mean, it's the it's the unseen that really is the danger. The danger. It, is, it'd be cool to just yeah. like have some sort of like mechanic for like how many cards you have out. Uh, sorry, how many land cards you have out deals damage to you over time so you have so you have to like keep cycling your lands out and managing like trying to keep less mana on the board yeah wow yeah it it does have what you're describing sort of has this uh this intense almost like even though what you're saying is there's no mountains there's no large forest sort of thing wide open skies it feels like montana here in the u.s but uh but it's still the the sound that I'm hearing in my mind's eye in my mind's ear, I guess, is is sort of the like this oppressive feeling, even though you're wide out in the middle of nowhere. And that's that's a really compelling uh, sort of aesthetic. I, I like that. Yeah, a lot. and it's and it's heat too. It's like it's yeah. the sound. It's it's the heat. It's the like there's no there's no shade. There's nowhere to hide. And Ooh. that's cool. Yeah, yeah. If you're listening, wizards. You you should be listening. This is a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and that is going on our uh, endorsements reel. Yeah, <laughs> we can asterisk that and add it to the Patreon. Perfect. So <laughs> the the first magic art that we saw from you um, was a Japanese promo part of that. Uh, the lands from that, I think, in two thousand eleven. The magic okay, premiere yeah. shop, I believe. Yeah, that, that wasn't the first stuff I did, but it was yeah, pretty close to it. Okay. Um, 
Mike Lineman, Vorthos Mike, uh, referenced that in one of his articles in 2015 on Cool Stuff, uh-huh. which was kind of comparing you to the Hudson River School painters of the 1800s, which, you know, here's oh. me sitting here knowing nothing, but just reading that sense, I'm like, we've got a badass one. <laughs> I don't even know what the Hudson River School painters are. It was it was actually just like a bunch of kids that went to the Hudson River School and, okay. and decided to paint. No, <laughs> that, that'd be a lot easier for, for me to deal with. But. Yeah, I mean, no. how is this a comparison that you're comfortable with? I mean, is it accurate? Is it? Yeah, I I I definitely see where he's coming from. I I'm not super up on my Hudson River School painter history. But if I remember correctly, they kind of had a mandate to popularize the idea of kind of national parks and and nature in the public consciousness. And part of uh, part of what they were doing was idealizing nature. So they were they were realistically painting, but they were also kind of modifying and exaggerating and creating this kind of allegorical i mean i don't know if you look at their paintings i've been up to the hudson river it doesn't look like that i wish it did (laughs) um it's beautiful i love it but it doesn't look like that it may have looked like that in the 1800s potentially potentially (laughs) isn't there like one painting where they're they're like looking over the hudson valley and it's got like jungle trees and ferns and stuff you know having lived in boston and traveled up through new york also not my memory of it right <laughs> um but uh you know i i love those paintings but also like I, I i never really felt like i was super connected to them like it's you know obviously it's not my country so i don't have that kind of uh, you know patriotic drive to love to love these movements of american painters um i think they're they're beautiful paintings but they're a bit for me they're a bit what's the word they're a bit dry they're a bit kind of um yeah, a bit, a bit too simple, a bit too, too uh, lacking in in. They don't have that fire that you were talking about before. Right. That sort of exactly. that uh, yeah. influential, the spiritual element under underpinning. Yeah. So you know, like, I guess if you were to look at at realistic painting against fantastic painting, um, I think that there's a spectrum, like if you're talking about realism in terms of being able to to render convincingly and create a convincing image, then I definitely fall on that side of painting. That's that's my background and I've tried to break away from that and do abstract work and I find that really difficult. So I'll always come back to that technicality. But in terms of the content, I think you have on one end of the spectrum, I'm trying to paint truly to what reality is and on the other end of the spectrum, you have I'm completely making this up and idealizing this world. And that's kind of like a Plato-Aristotle thing. Like the, the truth is here in the real world or the truth is in the, the realm of the ideal. And I'm really interested in the, the exact midpoint between those two things. So like for me, with my, my life that I've lived and my, and my background, I see real magic in the world. And I'm interested, like, exactly where does that reside and how do you bring that into artwork? Artists that get – there's there's two artists that are really influential for me and, and they sit just on either side of that midpoint. One is Antonio Lopez Garcia, mm-hmm. who's a Spanish painter and the kind of the father of the, the Spanish realist uh, school of, of contemporary painting. He's alive still. Um, he paints – 
very, very realistically, he paints from life. He paints over many, many sessions over years, and he does these huge uh, paintings of Madrid, uh, like cityscapes. He paints, you know, he'll do a 300-hour painting of a tree in his in the backyard of his house as it changes over the seasons and loses its leaves and then gets wow. them again. And I mean, he's he's going out and putting little marks on the on the leaves to measure, and he's pushing realism to the point where you know he's questioning his own sense of reality like am i really here am i really seeing this does this thing exist like to you know to a point of kind of almost zen buddhist attempt to interrogate reality and i would consider him like a magic realist on the realist side and then there's someone um vincent desiderio who's a, a philly based um painter and teacher brilliant artist and he paints almost entirely kind of from imagination um but he's um, allegorizing his ideas about the world of painting and kind of philosophically engaging with human history through through his painting uh maybe maybe a better example would be someone like odd nerdrum uh someone else who's who's painting these kind of archetypal iconic um, spiritual scenes from imagination with idealized figures but they're all painting you know quote unquote realistically and he sits more on the magics uh, on the uh, fantasy side of it where it's clearly not grounded in the world that we live in but in the in the ideas that underpin our thinking and so i'm like my fine art is going bang in the middle of those two and, and a number of other influences and really investigating like i'm fascinated like would it be possible to find that exact midpoint and have someone not know if it's grounded in in the ideal or in the real sort of the uncanny valley almost like you want totally. to hit right at the bottom yeah 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 i mean i'm looking at some of the um work right now of the hudson um, valley school uh, people so the, the among the sierra nevada is a california piece so it's the sierra nevadas is where i spent a lot of my childhood um that's is, that a, is that a bierstadt painting yes it is mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and I actually spent a lot of time in the Sierras um, hiking. That's where my family vacationed because we had a friend with a cabin. So we were able to go. And I, 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 I hiking has always been one of my things, getting away, hiking trails that there aren't other people on. And I'm looking at this painting and the realism piece to it. I can see where maybe uh, Vorthos Mike was kind of talking about where your landscapes come in here. Um, yeah. Even that piece that we were looking at from your swamp, uh, the Kaladesh swamp. It's like, I see that with that realism of what you saw in India, looking over that plains that became a swamp um, with just the sky swirled in the back. Is that touch of that fantastical that you're almost adding to your viewpoint? I, I think what, I think the, probably the interesting thing that came, I don't know, it might've even been a part of that article that he wrote, but the thing that interests has interested me over time when I've gotten feedback on my work from, from the magic community and also from like people like my mom, like people that kind of know my work, but aren't super qualified to, <laughs> to, yeah. to put language to it is like, I love your use of light. And this mm -hmm. to me was another one of those things that, that in the beginning was like, yeah, that, that means nothing. Like everyone uses light. What do you mean by that? <laughs> It's like, I, I love your use of hair. Like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all me. Um, but over time, I'm like, okay, okay, how do I actually use light differently? And, and I think what 
maybe something that Mike noticed uh, or subconsciously comes through in that work, especially in the early work in that Innistrad stuff, is that I often put my light source in the painting. So I was often painting the sun through clouds in the in the piece. Mm -hmm. And that's a really kind of, and I wasn't doing it consciously, but it's a really classical way to structure a painting. And it has to do with like the history of, of linear perspective and the connection between um, paintings and, and religion. Uh, because all of these things, this like linear perspective, vanishing point, uh, the way of structuring an imagined space like that comes out of some kind of like dialogue between the the, the real world and God or, or like the, the ineffable one as, as some uh, artists used to call it. And so I had this relationship in those early paintings without realizing it between, you know, the sun and, and the perspective of the image and like whether the clouds were covering the sun or not. And, you know, this, this also came out of the first world that I jumped into. I was told what kind of light there needed to be. Like it needs to be this time of day. There's a restriction on that. And so I guess some part of me was playing against that and like, okay, you don't, you don't, you don't lie in this. I'm going to sneak it in there. You know, like it's going to be in the painting, but, but somehow dimmed down, you know? So definitely like, and still like, if I look at it, I actually referenced that Bierstadt painting in something that I did recently. So there's an element mm. of. I planned that. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> totally unprepared. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, there's like, I think there's paintings where the light is incidental and it's just there to, to illuminate what's going on and, and you focus on the subject. And then I think there's paintings where the light is visually represented in the painting and it's creating an allegory or a metaphor for something. And you follow the path of that light through the work and it's, and it's symbolic. And in fact, all of the personal work, the, the personal projects that I'm doing at the moment are 100% related to, to light as a metaphor and, and in all kinds of ways, like reducing things back to simple relationships between uh, illumination and darkness. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think Mike definitely nailed the essence of something there, but I wouldn't necessarily say that the Hudson painters are, are a touchstone for me. Okay. I mean, yeah. it kind of brings us to bringing now the, this whole discussion that we have to, to this marriage between the game that we play and your art or, or art in general, kind of the beauty of nature and embracing the physical world, which is kind of what we've been talking about here with how you have engaged with the physical world, how that comes through in your art. And now we're talking about that through our love of a simulated game that we're playing mm -hmm. these worlds. Was that a question? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't like questions, but I ended it like one. Um, I agree with your statement. Thank, I mean, but Nailed I think it. it is kind of, yeah. uh, and Alex and Joe, I would love to hear you kind of talk a little bit about w how this has been for you in turning of how we play the game and embracing the physical nature, especially when it's a game that we often are playing indoors or digitally. And we're not, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like I'm sitting... Well, actually, to be fair, I've, I've done it outdoors, but it's not that I'm going to be camping and bringing along my cards with me and engaging in that same way, especially a gathering game that requires people, people or right. an internet connection. <laughs> or, I mean, that, that that maybe isn't engaging in the real world or the physical world in the same way. And I want to know what that's been like for, for you two. Yeah, I, I think we kind of get into some of that a lot when we you know, we're, we're sort of going through the process right now of planning 
our get togethers for um, Magic Fest Minneapolis coming up this August. And, and yeah. you know, one of the big, like you touched on before, Hobbs, is we really try to emphasize the gathering aspect. And to me, that's a lot of how, at least as a player and a fan, I connect in, in the physical world is you know, just having those opportunities to engage with people. It's not so much necessarily engaging with nature. And and I think that's hard. Like that is a hard thing to think through. I, I know that actually last, I don't remember if it was last summer or the summer before I did a couple of like day trip road trips with my wife and I had, uh, around Minnesota just to local historical sites. And I've actually found, uh, a number of places that, I, I thought I surprisingly looked like magic cards. There's a, a petroglyphs about 90 miles Southwest mm-hmm. in Minnesota, Southwest Uh-oh, of Minneapolis. He found our reference guys. <laughs> <laughs> he knows. Oh, quick, quick. Kai, Kai. I know where Muraganda is straight up. Like, <laughs> I mean, but it, it's, it's one of those things where I, I do think that you can have those elements. You, you sort of mentioned Adam seeing the magic in the real world and some of just this massive exposure to all of these images in these car in this card game has made me like just double take when I'm doing my my mail route at work when I'm delivering mail or you know like oh right. that's something that I've seen on X you know I think that's a really good point like I think I think that trying to rely on a game to get you out into nature is like you know it's 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 not what it was designed to do and I don't think that it's the responsibility of of magic to to get people to do that. But I think that it's super fascinating to think of how has this influenced me and how has this changed the way that I look at the world. And I agree with you that it's it's large. I think the the power of magic lies in social connection and in and in psychology and in this kind of laboratory where you sit and and you're always investigating how each other's minds are working like whether you're strategizing and being competitive or whether you're you know finding your feet in a in a new social circle or whatever like it's a human connection thing and i think that has to stay and i think that's mm. that's probably you know the the one thing that i would stay away from digital magic and and keep you know pumping up and putting resources into physical magic is like, it has to stay around the table. You know, it's about that. It's about local stores. It's about playing at each other's houses, you know, and, and I love that part of it. And then I think the, the nature part does come from that. It comes from, you know, seeing the trees on your way to work instead of the billboards, you know, just not, not because even because it reminds you of a magic card, but just because you're more adapted to looking at interesting, beautiful things and, and less adapted at, at looking at advertising, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think, I hope that, uh, magic just by deepening people's appreciation for beauty and for aesthetics, uh, you know, allows the people that engage with it to go out in the world with a better eye for that stuff and and more enthusiasm for the world around them period. I mean, the, the, drop. The, boom, <laughs> don't drop that mic. That looks I nice. I can't drop mine as well. It's a weird <laughs> snowball. <looking thing. laughs> I mean, it's bringing me back to thinking even like Joe said, we're getting ready for Magic Fest Minneapolis coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, we did a, a barbecue grill out at my house. We had just tables out 
playing outdoors. This, he's, he's going for the invite again. I can feel it coming. <laughs> so shoot your if shot. you're bored in August, <laughs> I mean, we, I mean, it, we also last year actually played a cube event the next day at a mini art center, basically an art studio that let us use that space. I know people that play a lot more in places like England that get together at the pub. Right. I mean, in, in the pub atmosphere is very different than things that we have in America, I would say, um, yep. villages. But the idea is just the idea that we want to showcase our city. We want to showcase the gathering. And part of that to me is the nature. It's playing magic in non-traditional yep. spaces. Non and I think that's cool, yeah. that's what I wanted to dovetail onto and highlight what you said, Hobbs, is non-traditional because it is getting people out of the convention center or the LGS necessarily and saying like, yeah, let's go to this uh you know, the microbrewery down the street or whatever, you know, you know, that the, some of the most interesting people I've had chats with were uh, people that came to magic events who were either in the military or did stuff like worked on oil rigs, mm -hmm. um, like people that had a lot of spare time and they wanted a, a complex game that was going to keep them entertained after, you know, Monopoly ran its course or whatever. And so there were, you know, there were people that were doing tours in Iraq or that, mm -hmm. that, you know, were working out on a mine for six months and they, they would go out and, you know, obviously they had disposable income and not much to do with it. So they'd buy enough cards for everyone and they'd, they'd teach everyone else how to play magic. And like, you know, then it's like, what happens with that interesting complexity and psychology and, and game structure somewhere like that? You know, yeah. like, wow, like who, who's a spike in a in a barracks full of spikes? You know, <laughs> so, what is what is really funny about this, Adam, is almost like you planned. I actually work at a hospital for veterans, so uh -huh. I'm, a, I'm a psychologist, and I work at a hospital in the states for veterans. Um, okay. When I was a trainee, I told one of the groups that I was working with in this group based program, "Hey." let's start a group teaching some of these guys to play magic, mainly guys in the program that I was in. And, and I got this pushback of veterans playing magic. Why would mi military people wouldn't enjoy that? I said, you don't oh, seem to understand. Really? Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I, I was, I was, my first training was in San Diego near the ship, the naval base. Yeah. The naval yeah. bases. Wow. And I, who came in dropping cash. It was, it was the guys from the military because they had nothing to do on a boat. <laughs> they needed something that could be played in a small area that didn't take up a ton of space yep and was complex and had strategy and so they were it was just, out, everyone yeah. on deck and they're like out come the magic cards yeah. no no guys everyone on deck <laughs> like legacy commander what are you talking about um but i had for, to convince... for that pun sorry obs for that pun you are welcome back anytime you want oh, yeah. that solidified oh, yeah. it but it was Is it better to than con... megasoda <laughs> Yeah, Joe, have you found us Megasota yet? Uh, still working on it. I'm a terrible producer, guys. But I had to convince this group of people I worked with who had kind of this preconceived notion about who was, yeah. quote unquote, a player of these games, not realizing, like you said, the oil field is the other good example of people who have money and can't really leave. Their job is in this place where they can't get to a local gaming store. So yeah. they need something that they can do with people. And totally. magic has been that for a lot of groups that you wouldn't think of. Go magic. Go magic. Magic's yeah. Cool. It's all going to change when the, when this Netflix thing comes out and then everyone's going to know what magic is and it's going to become super legit and cool and everywhere. Yeah. More I'll, than I'll, it is. Maybe. I'll stop playing at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end there. Well, for the part one. <laughs> Should I should I like go and, and like change my clothes so yeah. we can do like a part two and it looks like it's a different day? Yeah, I mean it's, it's yeah. completely audio, but we'll we'll feel like that. Yeah, you'll I mean, hear it. You'll hear it coming through this incredible recording. <laughs> yeah.
that's our show. You can find the podcast at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter or email any comments, questions, or concerns to goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support your friendly neighborhood gobslugs, you can do so at patreon.com slash goblinlorepod. This episode of Goblin Lore was hosted by Hobbs Q, who you can find on Twitter at Hobbs Q. This episode was written and co-hosted by Alex Newman, who you can find on Twitter at Alexander New M. Engineering, editing, and production for this episode by Joe Redman, who you can find on Twitter at Finthorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. Our music is by Wintergotten, who you can find at Wintergotten.com. That's Winter, G-A-T-A-N.com. Logo by Stephen Raphael on Twitter at Stephen Raphael. Goblin Lore is presented by Hipsters of the Coast, which you can find at hipstersofthecoast.com or hipstersmtg on Twitter. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.